You're listening to my viewfinder. I release a new episode every week on Friday. Hit that subscribe button and don't miss out on any of these awesome conversations. My Viewfinder is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. This episode was brought to you by the Calgary Foundation. Whether it's funding anti-racism programs, addiction recovery, or food hampers for the hungry, for 65 years, the Calgary Foundation has proudly supported the charitable community to address some of Calgary's biggest challenges. Now, during this period of unprecedented urgent needs, Calgary Foundation renewed its commitment to building a healthy, vibrant, giving, caring, and resilient community. If you're a registered charity looking for a grant, a professional advisor creating a giving plan for your client, or a donor wanting to give back to community, discover a wealth of resources at calgaryfoundation.org and learn more about their work through Calgary Foundation's Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Today I sit down with Chelsea Yang-Smith. I met Chelsea this summer through the Exposure Studio program. Chelsea is an artist here in Calgary who also works as a contract commercial photographer. She does all kinds of artsy stuff that I've seen on Instagram that are not photography related. In fact, as you'll hear, she has a more tempered and pragmatic approach to photography as a craft. And it's a realistic one, one that's allowed her to build a functioning working practice. In this first portion of our talk, I discover where this thought process comes from and her relationship with the photography world here in Calgary and as a craft in general. Uh, okay, well, thanks for thanks for coming on then and not canceling, which is exciting. You know, what uh, what interests you? We were talking a little bit in email about um, representation and uh, I don't know if we want to get into specifically race or gender or anything, but uh, is there anything that makes you feel like you need to express an opinion about? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. It's been an interesting time for sure. Like, um, I ended up having like a uh, interest like a long Instagram conversation with Brendan Stevens who's like another photographer here in Calgary we've never actually met in person he just followed me on Instagram one day and then like we started talking and like we share a lot of like similar ideologies when it comes to um like mannerisms and ways of working in the industry and um I was thinking a lot about like the lack of mentorship and like the kind of weird sexist like hierarchy alpha male kind of bs that is really prevalent in calgary um and then i was also talking to my other friend who's also a photographer uh david clark and he shoots like a bunch of film and um he had called me because he needed some advice on a quote he was doing for some friends and just wanted like some feedback and i was like oh yeah sure like i'm happy to do that um and we were just talking about how it's like a lot of the really established photographers are like really secretive about sharing their tips of success or something, which I also think is like bullshit. I'm like knowledge is power, like passing on that stuff to like emerging photographers only, only helps you in the long run because you know, then they're educating their clients on how to work. And then if you run into stuff, you know, down the road, it's, it, it just only helps. The kind of like scene and like um, Dave had gone to school in Falmouth and like wants to go to London to work as like a photo retoucher and kind of like build his career over there. And um, one thing he had mentioned is Calgary is very small, but there's a lot of ego here. And it's really strange for how small the city is, um, because like if that attitude was brought in, you know, to like, I don't know, 
London, for example, or like anywhere else in the world, like people would just uh, like automatically be like, nope, <laughs> like you're not, you're not that big. You're not that important. Like it totally doesn't warrant that kind of behavior. So it's really weird that it's something that's experienced all in Calgary. And even with like the engender publication that I, um, was working on I kind of interviewed like a couple of other female photographers in Calgary to kind of discuss this like culture and I still see it all the time um, that was one of the reasons I joined Exposure Studio was I really wanted to see if there was anything I could learn from it and pass on to other people like I really truly believe in mentorship I think it's it makes you a better photographer it challenges you to answer questions that you might not normally think of in your day-to-day -day, and it it makes you better at your craft, I think, by like teaching someone what it is or how to do it. And so, yeah, that was kind of my intention with exposure, even though it was like very against the grain for me in that like I try not to participate in a lot of like photography related events. Like usually for exposure month, I go to one or two events and I try to avoid conversations with like most of the I would say type of crowd that like attend these events um just because I don't really want to get stuck in a conversation about like what gear do you shoot with why is capture one better than this I'm like I don't care I really truly don't care um so yeah that it, it, it was an interesting experience I thought it was interesting to hear a lot of photographers talk um I don't know why I just I'll go on tangents if you don't stop me so like, exactly, okay. I don't even need to ask you primer questions it's great okay. I am <laughs> And I will just to be just to be that guy. But yeah, I, I mean, I already feel like I align with a lot of uh, what you're talking about. I um, I mean, the premise of this podcast is uh, I also hate meeting photographers and having to talk about my camera. <laughs> it's like, uh, for fuck's sake, you know, I, and I have one, which I think shocks a lot of uh, people. I've, I have this little micro four thirds and I was talking to somebody and I was like, yeah, I've shot a wedding. And they're like, you shot a wedding on this camera. I'm like, you know what? Let's, uh, you know, let's, let's move on. Um, so I kind of want to talk to people about photography, although that sounds a little pretentious too. And maybe more just like, you know, like your life, uh, in the sense of these things that, you know, interest you. I also think Calgary's a weird culture. <laughs> I think it's tiered. I feel like when I meet folks like you, Calgary actually has this sort of, let's call it groundswell movement where people actually uh, want to do right by each other, but at a certain, uh, maybe it's an income bracket or fucking, I don't know, uh, social hierarchy or generational wealth, or I don't know what it is. Uh, usually uh, it's rich, white, entitled white dudes, but um, yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is like before digital came into play, like the really established photographers here in Calgary, like they've been shooting forever. They've been shooting before like digital was a thing. And like the issue with a lot of these, um, this like hierarchy is like one agencies don't like taking risks on new people. And honestly, like these guys are like in their forties and their fifties, like, and they're happy to stay in Calgary. They have families here. They have homes that they've purchased. Like you don't quite see, this anomaly in places like New York where it's like the established photographers are in their 70s and that's because they've built their career in other places and then they've moved but these photographers will not move they have an established base they're going to stay in Calgary and they probably won't retire for another 20 years so um, when it comes to these like huge opportunities they're already getting it and agencies just won't take that risk these clients won't because they want you know that's a lot of at least in my opinion, like why people pay so much for photography is you're paying for the guarantee that you're going to get exactly what you're asking for. And when these guys deliver time and time again, like there's no point 
to really look for anyone else. Um, but that also brings in that kind of like, um, I don't want to say like traditional, like hierarchy attitude kind of thing, because it's like a lot of it, you see it in the tattoo industry where like people starting out have to apprentice first, they have to clean up the shop, they have to do pay their dues before they can even start tattooing. That has kind of translated over to photography. I don't think so much today because of, you know, there's classes, there's education, there's, there's smaller opportunities. There's, it's kind of like that structure, but there, there's ways around it. But I think that's why like those like old guard, like photographers hold kind of that old ideology is why that's like still existing. And like the problem is too, is they pass, like there's a lot of photographers in Calgary, like I would say who, um, the only reason they're freelancing and they're successful is because, you know, they shot the shit with some of these like fucking photographers and they're grandfathered into the scheme because like, you know, the guys get to the point where they're like, I don't need this gig anymore. Like I'd rather take a vacation or I'm going to pass it to this, you know, buddy. And then it just kind of like proliferates. So um, yeah, I definitely... It's very strange. It's like they're always at exposure events for some reason, but it's like, you know, the the grandfathered dudes into this, you know, who are quite not at that point, but like, you know, getting these gigs, they come to these events because it's it's about the swagger. It's about the ego of being like, well, I shot this. I did this. And like, I just find those events are like a big circle jerk of like stroking each other's egos. I'm just like, I don't care to participate in this. Yeah, I... (laughs) I'm just listening. I'm wondering, uh, I don't know, as much as I think, uh, you know, there's, uh, I don't know, is it a tradecraft culture where, like you talk about tattooing, um, it's weird how that actually is prevalent in many of these careers that we wouldn't expect from, uh, even like some archaic shit, like with, uh, like doctors should know better than to have a culture in which you're up for 48 hours. I mean, scientifically, they are taught and are well aware that you do not operate correctly on anything less than eight hours of sleep, but then because they've just been doing it this way for 200 years, right? But bringing back the point of Calgary being smaller than it believes to be, it's interesting also culturally. uh, My topical impression is, uh, much like you talk about agencies, that um, Calgary's got a weird cultural identity where it's not very, it doesn't seem on a surface to be very experimental and they want this sort of um not not just reliability i think they're set in looking a certain way um and it can be a little bit uh not frustrating i don't know what the right word is but challenging uh, especially as i hang out with more and more young folks that are studying this or passionately interested let's say in photography art or um, any sort of uh, creative expression they're hitting this wall but they're you know we're creating sub communities which is great and when we get to meet each other and everything's going fine on on that bottom rung but bridging that gap to actually get uh, a career built out of it is a fascinating thing yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it is about photography. I'm actually uh, impressed that you have uh, carved out a niche in some commercial freelancing for photography. One of my cynical ideas, actually you brought up this idea of a robot, is that that's going to dry up pretty quickly too. I don't know. I, I feel like there's something going on with the role and importance of imagery where we worship it more than we ever have, but we don't respect we don't respect the images. Maybe there's a symbiotic relationship there but yeah i mean that's something i think about a lot we did talk or we did get that uh, a couple of sort of uh, themes with our speakers at exposure studio about actually i think we're talking about the same thing the sort of uh, i mean mark and uh, andrew jackson mark Seely talked about uh, the word colonial and and um 
you know, I am like I'm Asian, as you can tell visually. People may not know that odd, you know, on the audio, but uh, <laughs> um, but I'm also you know Toronto born, straight, married, have a kid, so I, I have a lot of privileges as it is. Um, something that I've been thinking a lot about even before I. So, you know, with BLM and race and, uh, it, you know, with uh, gender and sexuality. But uh, it strikes me, too, that even just being a woman is hard enough. Never mind being part of a truly marginalized group. And then the language in which we, uh, let's say, take a picture or have representation in these roles is a fascinating problem. I mean, I don't know what your experience... Are you born here? Like, are you from Calgary or... Yeah. Um, my mom immigrated here from Burma, which is now called my, Myanmar, um, when she was, I think, 16, 14. Um, so as you can tell, I speak very fluent English. I have had people say like, oh, you speak really fluent. And I'm always really confused by that because I'm like, well, yes, I was born here. So I don't know why there was that misconception that I would not speak fluent English. Um, but that was a byproduct of my mom really wanting to make sure her kids spoke English very well because she is ESL. She still asks me how to spell certain things or like to proofread her emails or text messages before she sends them. Um, and uh, my dad is Caucasian. He's from Thunder Bay, Ontario, which is like, if anyone knows Thunder Bay, I would be surprised. It's really, I don't want to say like a backwater town, but like there's literally nothing to do there. Northwater town, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, like I spent a summer there because we had to like help my grandmother move and there was nothing like it was like their source of water in the house was like well water, which is like yellow and smells like sulfur. And I was like, where are we? This is a horrible, horrible place to be. So I forgot what we were talking about. But like I as a person who is like intersex, I guess, like two different identities, um, I've had to really kind of consider like what like first of all like where I even belong which I think is a really common thing with biracial children is um every like my second sight series I was taking portraits of friends and we we're just talking about mixed race identity and like the common thread throughout all of it was like growing up as a kid like you didn't feel like you belonged in either place like I clearly like as a as a kid like I didn't really uh fit in with like the white kids at school so I like I hung out with all the Asians and we all like compared to our like test results and things but then like I would go to Chinese school on the weekend because I wanted to like kind of really embrace my Asian identity and all my friends went to Chinese school so I was like obviously I'll go to Chinese school um but then I was like the only white kid in the class even though I'm not white and so like I felt really uncomfortable in that aspect there too um and I went there for like three or five years I don't speak any fluent Mandarin at all <laughs> despite being there for five years, which is like also like another facet of like children growing up biracial is they don't learn like one of their parents' languages. Like my mom never wanted me to learn Burmese because she's like, it's a useless language. You're literally never going to use it except inside the house. And so that was the reason for learning Mandarin was like, they're like Mandarin is like more spoken than Cantonese, even though all my friends speak Cantonese. And it's like, I have no one to practice with at home except my grandmother who's like a was a teacher in Burma. And so that's why she speaks Mandarin. But then I, even now as like, I go to restaurants, like I'm always like conscious of like the coding that I need to like, or the behavior I need to do to like, I don't want to say like assimilate, but like, un, like non-verbally communicate to like 
the dim sum cart lady that like I get it I'm also Asian like I'm like I'll order my food like by the Asian names you know I'll, like say like shish it like after she gives it to me and like it's weird that I would take offense when like they'd come around and like give me a fork because I'm just like I've been using chopsticks since I was seven but like that's the thing is like I do kind of I, I, I white pass for the most part and then you know when I'm entering these um, dominant white spaces in photography even in the art community I don't think people perceive me as Asian like or as a person of color like they and, and it's because I play the role really well you know I've gone to schools um, you know I speak English really well like I've grown up here in Canada in Calgary like I am indoctrinated to the colonial lens. This is what all I've ever known. Like I've never even gone to Burma to meet any of my cousins or like my aunts. Like, so it's one part of me that I, I completely don't know anything about that side of that identity at all. So that was like a tangent about. No, no, it's not a tangent at all. I, yeah, I have a similar thing. Uh, you know, growing up in Toronto is a little bit different just because Toronto truly is, even in the 70s and 80s, a much bigger melting pot than Calgary is even today. And so, like, for example, my kindergarten picture, so that's like 19, fuck, I'm old, 1982, you know? Um, you know, I think there's, it's less than 50% of the people in a North York elementary school are Caucasian. So, you know, I grew up in a particularly unique experience, still colonial in the sense it's still Canada and it's Canada in the 80s. So it's not like, I mean, people are encouraged and you end up in certain um, cultural spheres, but right, it's, you know, you're in some kind of country, you're going to... Um, fold in and so like you're talking about if people i've had arguments with uh, uh, uh pizza line uh, operators about my how to spell my last name and like you know people when they meet me if they've only spoke to me on the phone they'll be shocked because i sound like a uh, well i don't say white per se but i sound canadian because i'm canadian but um like you for whatever reason subconsciously or consciously who, who, who cares now in reflection but i did end up hanging out predominantly more with Asian people. But I had a chance to go to Korea when I was uh, 19 in one of those student, ex not exchange, but student programs. And uh, Korean people didn't hate me, but they fucking didn't like me. Because you walk into a place and they can tell you just by the way you dress, just by the way you look. And I got an opportunity with this program. I was going out to a, a bar or a pool hall with like Korean people who were raised in Germany, who were raised in India, who were raised in Brazil. And even amongst us, we're just like, holy fuck, like... You know, you look different, you speak different. We're all, you know, first or second generation Korean. So all our parents probably look identical in a cultural sense. But just being in a different environment, getting exposed to a different amount of sun, uh, wearing different, you know, eating different foods, you get such a fascinating um, diversity, really. Um, but in particular, when you brought up um, growing up and not being able to learn a language. So my son is essentially try you know, trilingual. So my wife is Taiwanese. Um, so Helen speaks English, of course, Mandarin, a little bit of Taiwan, Taiwanese. I'm Korean, uh, you know, nominally. And uh, so my son is going to be mixed race, although nobody will ever be able to tell by looking at him. Um, I don't speak Korean, at least not at home. I speak like a two-year-old child to my parents, of course. But so he doesn't have any grounding in Korean at all. Um, my wife still speaks to her family in Mandarin. So he actually went to Mandarin school. He started picking up really quickly because it is in the back, but he doesn't retain it because we speak to him in English because I don't speak Mandarin either. 
Um, and so it will be interesting if I were uh, a crazy sociological scientist to monitor his development, right? And just be like, oh, you know, I'm noticing in the first in the first ten years of your life, you're speaking this way. But so I do, I do, I do kind of understand. Um, you know, moving back to kind of like, do you think that that informs not just your work in photography, but like, is that why you started taking pictures? I, I don't know. Is there a relationship? When did you pick up? camera manipulation like what what's the story with cameras i would say maybe i had a very like non-traditional approach to photography as some people like i did not follow the photography route at all like i've always been really into art um high school i took all my art classes i was an art ap i went to the pre-college program at acad and i was like i really like drawing and painting i'm probably gonna go into drawing when i go to art school which was also supposed to be just a one-year thing. It was like most kids, I don't say white kids, but like most white kids take a year off between high school and um, post-secondary and they call it their gap year and they go and travel or whatever. But my mom was like, we want you to do like an MRI program at state. We want you to work in healthcare because healthcare always needs people. And um, I was like, well, I want to go to art school really bad. And I feel like I just need to explore this so I know what I'm missing out on. So I'm going to spend my gap year going to art school. And I took like all my core classes. I realized I'm really, I'm not amazing at drawing after being in a class full of people who are all artists. I was like, I'm okay. I'm not the worst, but I'm not, I don't think I'm cut out for this. Um, And I took a photography class and that was literally probably the first time I picked up like a DSLR. Like I had one, I was shooting auto though. I didn't know what the heck aperture shutter speed was. And I like kind of learned about it in class. I learned a little bit about photo manipulation. Um, I think like at the time, my editing skills um, were like, I was using like some online digital editor thing that just basically was like early Instagram. It just applied filters to things. Like I literally didn't know anything about Photoshop. And uh, that was kind of my introduction to photography. And after that, I kind of dropped out for a semester out of pressure for my parents to like go back to school and upgrade and get into the program they wanted me to get into. And then I quit that about like halfway. I was like, art school, like there's something better out there and I don't have to do this. Um, so then I came back for the other semester and I was really stuck between glass blowing and photography, which I think people are always surprised about because they're like, that is like two opposite sides of the spectrum. And I've never really worked with like three dimensional stuff. I just really loved glass blowing. I think they always kind of joke people who are glass blowers are like a little bit like pyromaniacs because it's a lot of just fire. But I couldn't really see... I guess like a career in glass blowing, it's like very expensive to start a studio. It's hard to get access. Um, and so I thought about photography and at the, it's still the case here, but um, ACAD's photography program is a bachelor of design, which in my head, I was like a bachelor of design sounds more established than the bachelor of fine arts. And I feel like I'll find more work at the bachelor of design than a BFA. Um, so I went into the photography program that following year. And that was kind of my, my, I guess like pathway to like figuring it out. Like I, like bless Kathy Simone, who was my photographer, uh, Photoshop teacher, because she was extremely thorough. Like I have learned everything under the sun. I mean, I'm still learning. There's always things to learn, but like I would not be uh, as comfortable and knowledgeable in Photoshop as I am now if it wasn't for her. Um, and I had some okay teachers that like, you know, like they're really great at helping you conceptualize projects and things like that. But like, by the time I had graduated, I knew how to take photos, like I knew the technical stuff. And that was something I really focused on my degree. Some 
of my classmates focused on um, like building commercial portfolios. Some were just doing like fine art kind of stuff. I always kind of felt really divided in between. And I think this is just like a common discourse in my life. Being biracial is like, I'm always stuck between like two things and trying to find the like happy in between. Um, so I just really decided to focus on the technical and I was like, I'll figure out what it is I want to shoot or what I want to do afterwards. And at least then I have the skills to execute it. And then from there, it was literally just like floating around like post-grad trying to figure out like freelance. Like I remember Jason staying in my class, was just like out of all of you, like all 14 of you, maybe one or two of you are going to be shooting after you graduate. And I was like, that's so harsh. And I'm like, oh, so now I'm like, that's so true. Um, and I was talking again to Brendan Stevens about this. It's like, what was like the success in like me freelancing? And I was like, I think I was just too stubborn to like let it go because I wanted to prove to my parents that I could do a career out of this. So I was like, I'm just going to keep hustling until something sticks. And I was really, really um, privileged to have received a practicum at the BAMP Center um, towards like the end of my first year, trying to freelance, trying to work part-time, trying to figure out what post-grad life is. And my mentor, Don Lee, had been shooting at the BAMP Center for over 20 years. He came from a very traditional film background. Um, and it was honestly, like, it was really hard. Like, that was, like, where I learned the technical and thought I knew what I was doing. Don literally taught me, like, this is how you do photography as a job. You know, it's, you're not going to be spending hours and hours working on a photo. It's not about, like, building this concept. It's, like, this is how you literally make money out of it. Money, like, time is money. Like, if you're spending more than a minute editing your photo, it's not a good photo. Throw it out. And, like, he would make us, like, put, like, black gaffer tape on the back of our LCD screen of our, like, DSLR. Because he's like, you're going to use a light meter. You should know exactly how this photo looks like. You don't need to use the LCD screen to check your work. And he's like, it's so disruptive when you're shooting portraits or shooting with a client that you're looking at the back of your screen to check your work. So it was, like, all these tidbits where I was like, oh, there's, like, a lot I actually don't know. And um, if it wasn't for that practicum, I do think eventually maybe I would have been freelancing, but I don't think I would have had been as fast tracked as I was after that because it really showed me the business side of things. Um, so that's kind of how I've like come into photography is like, it's, it wasn't planned. It wasn't, I wasn't one of those kids that's like, I carry my camera around everywhere and take pictures of everything. It was very much like learning a skill. And I still kind of consider that like, in terms of my artistic practice, it's very separate from my photo practice. And like, I don't know, it's, it's hard to say because I'm like, I feel like all these like photography buffs are like, it's a great image and like boo, boo, boo and do, do, do. I consider photography like the camera as a tool. It's a tool for creating something. I mean, I obviously have, uh, there's like clients that I've worked with that are like really cool. Like I've loved working with like old beautiful brewing company, like doing their like product beer can stuff. Like it's like such, you know, making just like, an image perfect like it's been like a really interesting problem to solve but I'm never like I don't know I don't I don't look at um you know I don't read like a lot of photo books and things and it's not because I don't um appreciate photography it's more I'm just like this is like a tool it's like like I feel like it's the equivalent of like someone who works in like I don't know like pipe fitting you know like whatever it's like you know, it, it's a tool for getting the job done. Like on their spare time, yeah, they might look through like a catalog or like a like a 
instruction booklet on like different types of pipe fitting, but they're not going to be like, Oh, all I want to do is look at pipe fitting kind of stuff over and over again. It's like, it's, it's something that will help inform their practice. So that's kind of my approach to photography, which may like upset some people who are like, it's like a whole thing, whole art, a whole yeah, and, and that goes into the historical connotations of photography as well as like when it, like it at the time, just being able to um, like keep an image to actually like capture something and have it stay, and not just disappear. Like that was that was the whole premise of like daguerreotypes and all of those things that were so revolutionary was that like people instead of just like remembering everything in their heads, they could actually keep a physical piece of something of a moment in time. That's that's what photography is is capturing a moment in time, um, and that kind of helped. I think from there it kind of split into like using that ability to either um, create art or to document it in the terms of like, like historical value. So, you know, what strikes me a little bit, I mean, there's a couple things, but uh, number one, uh, I love glass blowing. I, uh, did you see the Netflix show with the competitive? Blown Fuck, away? That's, that's an amazing show. Like, was, she was like two years above me, like oh. in the ACAD program. Like I knew who she was, which was like, also, um, what's his name? Alexander. He was like one of the finalists. Um, I had gone on exchange to Philadelphia to take like a glass blowing photography dual course, like in my undergrad. Unfortunately, he was taking a sabbatical that term, uh-huh. but I was really looking forward to actually like having him as an instructor. So it was like really interesting to see like, oh, like there's a lot of really cool people here. Yeah. Like, uh, I mean, I'm certainly no glass blowing aficionado. I, I remember like Toronto's got in the in the Harbourfront district uh, a cool sort of glass blowing collective studio. So it's kind of just in the ether. But when we went to Seattle and went to the Chihuly uh, Museum, I don't know what it, I don't know if it's technically a museum, but when you see it expresses an art, it's fucking. I mean, it's all art and craft. But uh, but I mean, to kind of this point, you have an interesting perspective on photography, which I hear a lot with, um, like in the wedding business and then with commercial uh, photographers, which is the schism and the separation between a process as uh, a fine art and a process as a uh, commercial enterprise. And uh, glass blowing is the same. Like you can have a Chihuly's making impossible structures, or you can have somebody that actually makes ewers and vases and like ashtrays and shit. And likely the second one might actually be able to get paid until you, you know, become world famous at something. There's a lot, not a lot of, uh, at least by trope, there's not a lot of financial support for practices that are just for the sake of art. And I think photography is the same thing. You know, there's a, there's a, an American lie about uh, the idea of a free market that you can choose to do whatever you want and somebody out there will give you a million bucks for it. That's total bullshit. But I think artists really, particularly because of the way art evolved, uh, pop art and commercial art evolved in, in North America, they really believe that if you just stick with your guns and make pretty pictures, someday some benefactor will come and you will get right a lot of money to do that. That practical mindset's fascinating. I, uh, I don't have that, you know, you have a very specific and singular approach to it, which I think is important. Um, the other thing I want, like I, so that's number one. Um, I think the reason why you're successful at, it sounds like securing freelance commercial is because you don't think about it as an art, at least that aspect of it. Um, Honestly, yeah. Like I look at my classmates who are, you know, like that very typical, like I've been photographing forever and I just love it so much. I live and breathe and die by photography. And I'm like, 
the problem is like there are so many clients and just people out there who take advantage of that all the time they're like oh you love it then you must love doing it for free and for me I'm like I don't love photography like it's what I do it's a job so like I'm very uh what's the word I want to say like blunt but when like people are like oh like can you do this for free I'm like no it's like I don't love doing it like it's work it's work for me so like I'm not gonna do it unless I get money out of it at the end of the day like and that's not to say like there isn't value in pro bono stuff too like if there's something you're really excited on and there's like something you get out of it or you can get a trade or whatever you know like I'll still take I'll there's a line in which like I'll be like maybe I'll do this but I'm not gonna do like you know xyz you might just get like the X only package, you know, not all the add-ons. Um, but yeah, it's, I find like the less, I don't want to say like the less passionate, but like the less you love it, like the more likely you're willing to charge for it and actually make money off of it because um, it is work. And for people who love it so much, you know, it sometimes doesn't feel like work, but then you get this uh, conflict where you're investing so much time and energy, but you're not really getting anything out of it. And then you start to get really bitter towards your craft. And so I think like for me, having gone into photography, like something that I wasn't, you know, really married to necessarily, I think it was like a smart decision and giving me the technical skill set that I needed to succeed. And then like everything else kind of just sorted itself out from there. But that being said too, like freelance is not for everyone and it's not shameful for um, people to you know take on gigs and have a part-time job you know like stability is a really important thing like I worked at ACAB for a while as like a receptionist as a technician and like now they like hire me for photo stuff but like and I even um, like have been on and off bartending for like since I was out of school like it's not I don't know how to explain it like people like even steaming clothes at like um tc like people are like oh like you must think that like that's a shame that like you're not doing your photography stuff at this place when like you're steaming clothes instead i'm like no it's great because i can listen to podcasts and like just steam clothes and turn off like i don't have to like think or problem solve or anything i literally just have to like steam wrinkles out of clothes and it's not it's not shameful to like have that i think a lot of people think like because you freelance you suddenly made it but it's like they don't see all the in between where it's like you're bailing out on commitments or you don't really get to pick your hours you know your deadlines are your clients deadlines and like I'm really fortunate that like I have a quick turnaround I've really like streamlined my process but like for some people it takes them like a week or two weeks to like get stuff done and then like clients are like well, we need it tomorrow and it's like well suddenly I don't have time to make dinner or do anything tonight because I need to get this done by tomorrow for the client um, and a lot of it's like emails a lot of it is you know, Matt, like, I remember they said this in school where it's like 30% of your time is actually spent shooting. 70% is like management, which is like, I wouldn't, it depends how good you get at management, that percentage will change. But again, like freelance is not for everyone. And it's not, you don't need to like aspire to get to that point to feel like you've made it. Like it's, I think it's really just negotiating what works for you best. Like for me, I'm very much, um, I have to-do lists and sticky notes all the time. I'm a very organized individual. Um, I hate, I don't want to say I hate working for other people, but like I hate going to jobs where people are like telling me to smile more or like I need to be friendlier to customers or things like that or whatever. Um, I could not deal, I hated doing that when I was through school. Like I worked a lot of customer service jobs and I was like, I don't understand why I have to smile to like enrich the customer's experience. Like it doesn't really change. Um, but now I don't have to do that. Now I can like, 
scowl as much as I want and go in and be completely left alone in a gallery to like photograph something. And then like, they know I'm going to get the files done and it's great. Like that personality wise, that's a good matchup for me. But again, it's not, you know, it's not for everyone. Um, is one thing I just really want to, I don't know, really point out because I feel like a lot of people think like, oh, I just really want to freelance or really just want to be there. And I was like, again, it's like, it's not for anyone and it's not embarrassing if it's not for you. Like you find what works. Don't forget to subscribe to this channel and connect with me on social media. My account on Twitter is at MVF Podcast. And if you're on Instagram, you can find me at My Viewfinder Podcast. Today, I want to tell you about ATB's new podcast, The Future Of. Join Todd Hirsch, ATB's Vice President and Chief Economist, as he connects with special guests who offer unique and useful perspectives about the future. Explore how our economy and communities not only brace for change, but embrace the opportunity it creates. From the future of women in business to the changing nature of work itself, The Future Of helps understand what's coming and what we need to do today to get to the tomorrow we want. Featuring two episodes each month, plus bonus episodes, The Future Of includes interviews with top community and business leaders from Alberta and around the world. Subscribe to The Future Of in the Apple Store, Google Play, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are found. And connect to ask your questions about the future by emailing thefutureof at atb.com.